Good morning and welcome to Backstory with me, Noreen Meir. We have a wonderful guest with us this morning. Now, we often hear him on U.S. politics, Sino-U.S. relations and foreign trade policies. He was the former chairman of AmCham and he's an adjunct associate professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And now he's currently the chairman of Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. He is Mark Michelson and with such a wide area of expertise, before we hear his personal story, first, let's hear what he does exactly. I do a lot of things. I, maybe, it's, maybe it's because I can't figure out what I really want to do when I, when I grow up. But uh, the main thing I do now is I chair a group of regional CEOs of multinational companies, which is called the Asia CEO Forum. And we meet regularly and talk about the economy, politics, and the issues that affect them in doing business. And a lot of it is just interaction among the executives. And sort of what I used to do in the 1980s with the Economist Group uh, in, in Hong Kong and Japan. I also still consult in uh, public affairs. And so deal with uh, advocacy, lobbying, I guess you would call it, government relations. And I teach three courses at Chinese University in global political economy and public policy, wow. among other things. Amongst other things, <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, let, let's yeah. go back to, to the very beginning then. You're originally from, from the U.S.? Um, yes. What did your parents do? Well, uh, my, my father was in the clothing business. He was in first the wholesale side of that and then sold men's and women's clothing. And my mother was a jack-of-all-trades, but she worked in administration at the University of Chicago Law School when my parents first met. And actually, they were married on the campus of the University of Chicago, and I was born very nearby in Hyde Park, very near where the current president of the United States lives, although he way before, way before that time. But, but at, when I was only about four years old, we moved another part of Illinois, the same state, a uh, place called Galesburg, which was a town then of about 40,000. It's shrunk since, and uh, which was an agricultural and, uh, and factory town. And uh, sort of vibrant and almost made the movies because downtown looked pretty much like, like you used to see with people gathering in sort of the center of the town. Yeah. Did you have a happy childhood? Very happy. Very happy. You, you sort of knew everybody. It wasn't a a very large town, but there still seemed to be enough to do. It wasn't like being in a big city, but at the same time, you you made things to do. I mean, it, it might have been athletics, uh, various kinds of entertainment, movies, and and other things. And it was a it was it wasn't a mountainous area, but it was a flat area. But there was a it was a lot of a lot of good places to see. Yeah, what was like a, a typical day for, for you after school? What what would you do? Well, often I would uh, I would do something. Athletically, not that I was a big athlete, I, I wasn't, but I played a lot of basketball. I played tennis. I even played football, American football, for a little That's while. Super sporty. Yeah, <laughs> that that was not that was not a, a particularly successful uh, adventure at, at all. And then you know, and then we would we would do other activities too. There, I was a member of a lot of organizations, you know, I can student consuls, student yeah. government, all that sort of thing. And I got very interested in politics. Uh, early on, not that I was partisan so much, but I just liked the idea of of finding out uh, what people were going to be deciding how you were going to live and work. Yeah, what kind of a student were you? I did pretty well. Yeah, I can o imagine. O o over the years, but at the same time, you know, I didn't let it overwhelm me. Uh, you know, although I liked to read books, I did a lot of that, and I and I also worked reasonably hard at studying, I found time to uh, have, a, have a good time too. 
Yeah. So what did you want to do when you were growing up? Did, did you have a clear idea of what you wanted to be? Well, it wasn't clear. I was influenced a little bit by my parents and especially my mother who wanted me to be a lawyer. And so I thought that might be, might, might be a bad thing because it would give you the opportunity to think of a lot of things you could do. As you know, people with law backgrounds um, might do a lot of things. They might actually go into politics or they might go into public service of, of other kinds or some teach. Uh, they do various different, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, careers. So I thought that might be interesting. But the more I, I learned about it, the more I, I thought that that probably wasn't what I wanted to do. And then I went to a liberal arts college with the idea you're supposed to go to a liberal arts college in the sense that you really didn't know what you wanted to do when you grew up. So we'd have a lot of opportunities to try to test yeah. and see what, what might interest you. So you didn't have a clear idea of what you wanted to do? I didn't. I didn't. And the last thing I thought about was Asia, for sure, growing up. Uh, we had no connection with with Asia and uh, and and so it was mostly the U.S. and Europe to some extent. My my father was from Europe. My 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 mother's family was was from what's now Belarus, and so that was the connection. Nothing to do with Asia, and it was in in university and college where I really got interested. That's a cool household. Did did you feel very American though growing up? Or did well, you... I did. My mother was was born in the United States, yeah. and she was she's quite American. But my my father was was born in Germany. So, you know, I had the connection for sure. So I felt a little bit more international, but in a in a place that was not not very international, frankly. We did have a, a what was a small liberal arts college in, in our in our town which uh, which did have students from a lot of places around the world. So I had some contact but it was nothing like being in Hong Kong, for example. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about how you ended up in, in Hong Kong. So what was your first job then after you graduated? Well, even before I graduated, my uh, my, my, fa- my Well, yeah, my family uh, ran a men's and women's clothing store. Uh, my The partner was my uncle who was married to my father's sister. And so I started working there probably when I was 12 years old. That's child labor. Uh, yes, child labor. That's what I think now. I've got to, I've got to raise that. I think it's a little bit too late. But I started, you know, packing boxes and, and, you know, and dealing with, uh, dealing with those sort of things and eventually graduated to sales. Wow. So, you know, there, there you are. And it was a gradual transition. I never worked full time, but I worked during holidays and, and those sort of things. So, uh, so I did get a lot of experience, I guess. Did you enjoy working? Did you think it was, you know? I did, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I also had summer jobs. I, uh, I, I worked in the cornfields like a lot of people did. Detasseling corn. I won't explain what that is. It wasn't a lot of fun. Uh, and, and also I worked for the road crew. In town, fill, well, filling filling holes, filling cracks in streets with tar, which was again not very pleasant. But we had a great crew, all people I knew. They were, you know, they were my my classmates. That's a noble but thankless job. Noble, thank you, John. Nice tan. Wow. So after okay, so you did a, a lot of different jobs. What was your first real sort of paying job um, after you graduated from from college? Well, it was uh, it was actually it was actually doing sort of what I do now. It was uh, it was government of government affairs and communications, and so that's really what I did. I taught briefly. 
I actually, I guess that was my first job. I I taught part time at a, a nearby junior college near where I went to university, University of Illinois, uh, graduate school. Uh, but that was a that was short term, and I, and I was all, also was a teaching assistant, so I I did teach classes. So. So the, that was, you know, while I was in school and also just, just after school. But really the first job was more or less in Hong Kong, really, where I, uh, where I got a job for a company called Business International, which was a uh, research consulting and uh, publications company, which later was taken over by The Economist. And so uh, that's where I got involved with, uh, with Asia. But that goes back to how I first got interested in Asia. Did you always know you were good with people? Yeah, I I was, and I think I inherited that mainly from my mother. She was she was a natural, and she always was very uh, very inclusive, very involved with people and organizations. And although I didn't set out to do that, it, it was that way. So you know, I I guess I was networking when I was in kindergarten, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> this is what people tell me. I don't remember all that, but a lot of people tell me I I did that. Yeah, I always like to be with people and various different kinds of people. And our time was sort of interesting because uh, it was on the railroad. And so it was really a railroad town as well. And so we had a Chinese population, not a gigantic one, but, but there originally. There you go. That's your age. <laughs> there it was. I didn't realize it at the time. But they were descendants of, of railroad workers, I yeah. guess. So in my class, when I was in secondary school, there were several Chinese, and there were towns nearby, one called Pekin and one called Canton, which were obviously named after Chinese cities. I'm sure they didn't know that, but they were. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about – I also read in your CV – such an impressive CV, Mark. I can't even read out all of it. But I read somewhere that really just sort of uh, stuck in my head. You studied Japanese. That's my background. Japanese studies. So uh, without a, a real sort of Asian connection growing up, what made you pick well, Japanese? That's – that's. I was a – my first year in university and college, Carleton College in, in Minnesota, uh, there was a, a professor who taught both Japanese and Chinese studies. And so I, I wrote, worked for the college newspaper and I interviewed him. I don't remember why or what the story was, but I interviewed him and he, it was very interesting. So then two years later, you're always trying to fill up your program and looking for courses. And there was Chinese civilization. I said, I remember him. I'll take that. And then about halfway through, he said, well, the second semester is Japanese civilization. Why don't you, why don't you sign up for that and then go to Japan this summer? And I said, sure, where's Japan? But, I, <laughs> but anyway, so I did it and I, I frankly got hooked. What was his background? Why did he speak both Japanese and Chinese? That's a, such an unusual combination. That's spy-like. His name is John Perry. And his, his ancestor was a guy called Matthew Perry, Commodore Perry, who opened up Japan in the, 18, in the 1850s. Oh. So uh, I guess a lot of family background, my oh. guess. You know, okay. We didn't actually talk about that much, but I think that's probably it. Okay, you did some research yeah. and, and you found out. Okay, so then you went to Japan that summer then? I went to Japan that summer with a group of about 15, 15 other students, and it was an amazing experience because we went with a religion professor. So we were studying religions of Japan, so did a lot with Buddhism. We went to monasteries. We did uh, Zazen, sitting, sitting meditation. Um, we went throughout Japan. We stayed with a family for a week. So it was a great experience, and we'd done a little Japanese uh, language training beforehand. None of us were fluent in Japanese, but we got interested. But was 
What also was sort of interesting to me, one of my one of my classmates who went with me later became a physicist and then a, a longtime congressman from uh, from New Jersey, and he never went back to Asia until sort of he became uh, part of the way through his term as as congressman. Whereas probably the the student who had the the most challenges when we went went back to Japan the next year and it's never never left. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't predict these things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was sort of your your first taste of of That's Asia, right. and then how long was it until you came to Hong Kong? Then how did your journey in Hong Kong begin? Well, there was there were there were some uh, some some challenges in between. Well, not challenges, uh, decisions that I had to make because after I finished undergraduate study like a lot of people i thought of taking a little bit of time off so i wasn't going to go straight into graduate school or even not quite sure and one summer i worked as a as a ranger at one of the national parks outside of washington dc just happened to <laughs> to, to, cool to, to get that job which i loved and so i i said well why don't i apply for the national park service i didn't want to do that necessarily as a career but try it for a little while and it is government like any government so I applied, but the application and the response took a long time. So I just I just decided to sign up for graduate school, take Japanese language at the University of Illinois. You know, I was going to wait to see what happened. And then a month or so later, it came through and I was accepted Yes. at the national. But then I had to make a decision. I'm still not sure if it was the right one, but I stayed with Japanese. I, I, so you <laughs> maybe I should be out in the parks right now, but I'm not. <laughs> I thought you really wanted to do that. I did. I did. But, you know, I, I my Japanese teacher, it wasn't that I was brilliant at Japanese. I did all right. But my Japanese teacher was so enthusiastic and, uh, and you know, really – convinced me to stay and keep along and then I then I got into Japanese studies so uh, I guess I I guess I ended up uh, liking that all right well before we talk about your journey in Hong Kong I know you brought along a, a song with you mark can you t- before we play it tell us what is the significance of this song what is it called it's called it's called the times they are changing and written by Bob Dylan which dates me a little bit but you know I I went, went to school in Minnesota and that's where Bob Dylan is from. He's from northern Minnesota and actually spent a lot of time before he went to New York around our our neighborhood just north of us in Minneapolis and toward Minneapolis. And I used to go regularly to a to a club when I was in school uh, where several people played who used to play with him and were associated with him. So a lot of uh, a, a lot of connection there. Plus his songs really meant a lot to me. And this one talks about how you have to uh, – how everything is changing around you and you have to make decisions and you you should maybe embrace it. And, of course, this is about the 60s, but it can be about any time. And not only seems to apply to me, but seems to apply to Hong Kong as well. So, you know, just quickly, you're going to hear it anyway, but where he says, come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. So uh, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are changing, which means you have to adjust and you have to think of how you're going to keep going and, and maybe be successful and do what you want to do. And again, it applies to me. And of course, I didn't know, but it seems to apply to Hong Kong pretty much too over the past 170 years. I was just thinking yeah. that it's such a good Hong Kong. So well, let's have a listen then. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the 
waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing Critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming For the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Senators, congressmen, please heed the call Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled The battle outside region Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing Mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are a-changing The curse it is cast The slow one now Will later be fast As the present now Will later be past The order is rapidly fading And the first one now Will later be last For the times They are a-changing All right, the time has come. You can't avoid the question. How did you end up in Hong Kong then? <laughs> Again, a little bit indirectly, because although a lot of people in the United States seem to think that, that Hong Kong is part of Japan, uh, that's notice, not... <laughs> notice the States and the UK as well. Yeah. When I went there first, people were like, oh, yeah, do you, do you like sushi? Yeah, that's right. like, no, it's Hong Kong. That's right. That's right. And that hasn't... I thought it would have changed over the years, but maybe you can see from the current presidential contest in the United States, it probably hasn't. Nevertheless, uh, what happened was I I got a job. I went to – was in a special program. I was finishing my PhD uh, in Japanese studies and there was this program being offered. I'd worked – one of the jobs that I did part-time when I was in graduate school was working for the business school. This is at the University of Illinois and I worked with uh, EMBA students from Japan and Korea. So there was a connection there, of course. Uh, but at the same time, that sort of interested me and I said, well, although I like teaching 
and clearly I still do it, so I guess I, I still like it, are there alternatives? And what happened, there were a number of programs at that time that were being offered by universities, usually sponsored by, by companies. And the one that interested me was called Careers in Business at, the, at New York University uh, in, uh, in, in New York City. And that was uh, – you took a mini MBA basically, but wow. the real focus was on placement. And so it was – you had to apply and be accepted, but you didn't have to pay. So it was, you know, was sponsored by the companies. And then what they did was at the end arrange interviews for you and also f- help you figure out – there was a book that they used, which I think is still being used, which is called What Colors Your Parachute, which uh, yes. which basically t- talks about your skills and makes you focus on them and how they can be applied perhaps for other things. And so as part of that, I you know interviewed with a lot of companies. And then this one company came up, Business International uh, – that was focused on Asia and they didn't have a job, you know, when, when I first talked to them, but then suddenly I got a note that somebody had left and they said, would you like to come to Hong Kong and be in charge of North Asia, which meant Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And I said, yes, finally. And so that's how I got to Hong Kong. But I spent a lot of time in those, in those countries. Uh, the first 10 years I was in Hong Kong. So I was based in Hong Kong, but was on an, was on an airplane a lot and went to Japan, even though I I did move back there briefly in the uh, uh, in the nineteen eighties for a year and a half. But then our company was taken over by the Economist, as I mentioned before, and several people left. So you know, uh, so I was I was called back. But I still spent uh, six or seven times in Japan each year, maybe sometimes sometimes a little bit more. And so I still have the connection. I never did live again in Japan, and now as it turns out I almost never get there. Yeah. Spend most of my time in in China and Southeast Asia. Yeah, did you like Hong Kong when you fir- that was your first time to come to Hong Kong? What were your impressions of Hong Kong when you first got here? A very vibrant city. We lived in Causeway Bay oh, at yeah. the Excelsior Hotel to begin with, and that place was just humming all the time well not very early in the morning it doesn't wake up very early but you know late into the hours of the night and was crowded and people were active still now yeah, yeah and and still the you know and Wan Chai was the old Wan Chai so I had read the world of Susie Wong <laughs> and uh, and you know I actually many years later actually a few years ago I met Nancy Guan who uh, who was visiting Hong Kong? Who starred in that? And I told her she was the reason I came to Hong Kong. It really wasn't necessarily <laughs> Did true. Did she pull for it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know, but it was true that I'd read the read the book, and our office was in Wan Chai, so so it was uh, it was on Hennessy Road, number one Hennessy Road Asian House, which just got torn down. Actually, never mind. It should have been torn down before. But but nonetheless, it was a great neighborhood. And the the old China Fleet Club was there. Yeah. So there were a lot of sailors. There were a lot of restaurants. Uh, obviously, the Suzy Wong District was like it was in the book pretty much. And so it was a fascinating place. Mark, during your time in Hong Kong, you've done a variety of different things for the Hong Kong community. And, and one of them, you were the chairman of AmCham. Do you have any sort of um, stories you can well, share with the, us? The, I was the chairman of AmCham 1996, the year before the handover. So somebody told me I did about 300 interviews that year. I don't know, but it's, there was so much That's interest. Like one a day. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at, what I liked about AmCham, and actually my term, I, I served in the Hong Kong government for five years as well. 
with Invest Hong Kong. But I did a lot of advocacy, and the government was internal advocacy on behalf of uh, of companies that were that were based in Hong Kong, but also on behalf of my clients, both as part of AmCham and also uh, also individually as, as part of the uh, the, the uh, companies and consultancies I work for. So I spent a lot of time with government officials across Asia and in the United States. And when they came to Hong Kong, sometimes I, I would see them as well, uh, usually as uh, for the Consul General's reception. So one of the most interesting ones was in the early 1980s when, um, when Bert Levin was the U.S. Consul General, uh, a, uh, a legendary figure who's now teaches part-time at my old college at Carleton College in, in Minnesota. And he was, he was desperate. He was holding a cocktail for a visiting governor of Arkansas uh, who nobody had really heard of and who was on his way back from Taiwan to the United States and was, was begging people to come and finally got a group of people. And that, of course, was Bill Clinton, uh, who was very – was impressive – Although, frankly, after leaving, I didn't think he was necessarily going to be the president of the United States. What was so that, he like? <laughs> well, he was very engaging, very smart, very wonkish at that time. And he actually showed that in the early parts of his career. There's a famous a famous situation where he's on a, a talk show, Johnny Carson uh, talk show, who, and he made fun of him because Clinton did a nominating uh, speech for Michael Dukakis. Uh, many years, the four years before he actually ran for president, and uh, it went on and on and on, and it was full of of great facts and insights, but way too long for a speech. He got much better at that uh, later on, but but at the same time, impressive. But you know, there are a lot of people at that time that that you know you thought could could go forward, and it was only later on that it became clearer. Uh, what kind of skills he had. Yeah. Did you also meet Hillary Clinton as well? I did. I met her a couple of times. Uh, president Clinton came to uh, Hong Kong in 1998, the only sitting U.S. president that visited Hong Kong and spoke to a group that was organized by American Chamber of Commerce. And then uh, and then I also met Hillary more for a little longer period of time when she spoke here, oh, about a year, year and a half ago or so, and spend about five minutes talking to her, very engaging, uh, very intelligent, and was clear that she was uh, going to do something else and run again for president even then. Did you, could you tell already? Well, you could sort of tell. Because she was talking about the kind of issues that you talk about when you're thinking about being president, not just secretary of state or, or something else. Yeah. Mark, out of curiosity, did you ever want to enter politics in, in, in a real way? Because you're very political savvy yourself. Did you ever want to, you know, enter politics? I work with politicians and I thought about it. I'm just not sure how good I would be, especially at the campaigning part. I, you know, in terms of being able to speak and talk to people, I guess I could do that. But, you know, the uh, the pace and the money you have to raise and all the aspects around it are not all that appealing. So I'd rather, as I did before at least, support and work with candidates. I don't do it so much anymore, but I used to do some of that rather than be one myself. Yeah. Talk about your hobbies. You have a diversified, I'm sure, you're sporty. Do you still do a, a lot of sports? What, what sort of things do you well, do? Well, something in Hong Kong, what I do a lot of is, is hiking and cycling. And cycling I just took up again a, a few years ago. It's a the old saying is that you always remember how to ride a bicycle. Well, it turns out to be true. 
But uh, on the road or yeah, on the, in the gym? No, not on the road, on, on bike paths, yeah. mostly in the oh, new okay. territories. Because I teach at Chinese University, and you might know there are a lot of bike paths around there. But also I have a friend, Danish friend, who runs a, uh, a hiking and biking guide service, and I'm involved with that a lot too. I'm not a mountain biker, uh, not heavy, but I really enjoy seeing that. And I learned so much about Hong Kong. I found these ancestral halls that were hundreds of years old that I never knew existed. Where? In the New Territories, in, the, in oh. various parts of the New Territories mostly. Oh, like and, those um... – And they're preserved and there are bells, you know, that – that talk about what had happened historically in the, you know, in the in the year of the so and so emperor and so on. And there's even things from the Ming Dynasty and even the Sung Dynasty. You've been in Hong Kong for over thirty years now. Are you optimistic about the future of Hong Kong? I'm optimistic about the Hong Kong people, because uh, Hong Kong's obituary has been written many times over the years, and uh, there's an old old, uh, uh, it's not a saying actually, it's, it's a true story. Mark Twain uh, who, was a, who was a great, who was an American author Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer and so on. Uh, there were newspaper reports about his death and so he responded to that saying the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated and that's sort of been Hong Kong Many times, including just before the handover, you remember there was a big cover on Fortune magazine that said the death of Hong Kong. It didn't really happen. But now there's a greater challenge, I think. It's politically and economically, and Hong Kong has to, has to step up. So we're in one of those watershed periods, I think, and that word's overused, but I think we really are, where we have to think of what our strengths are, and we've still got a lot of them, and have to, have to move forward, and have to move together a little bit more than we have been uh, in the past few months and years. Such an optimistic note to, to end on. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed chatting with you this morning. And we'll hear more of you on Radio 3, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you, Noreen.